Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And the really interesting thing about the subject of today's podcast is uh, how many labels he gets. So if you look up any biography on him, the intro will absolutely include some combination of the words chemist, biologist, geologist, physiologist, economist. He even held a law degree, though he never practiced law. But at the end of the day, this particular figure is most often referred to as the father of modern chemistry. Uh, and we referred to this person, who is Antoine Lavoisier, uh, before, during our episode on Sophie Blanchard and the ballooning craze. But he definitely deserves his own podcast, uh, because he was instrumental in transitioning the field of chemistry from one that was still back in alchemical thinking and the combination of science and magic and sort of experimenting in that arena to a much more serious and systematic way to analyze and understand the world around us. And while he made incredible contributions to science, uh, his life also took some really important political turns uh, amid the turmoil of the French Revolution. So he had a, a lot of influence in very many uh, different and seemingly disparate places throughout his life. Yeah, well, and uh, I was startled to learn how many of the basic things that I learned in science class came straight from him. Yeah. He was uh, really impactful on our modern lives, whether we realize it or not. Yes. He was born Antoine Laurent Lavoisier on August 26, 1743, and he was born pretty well into privilege. His father, Jean-Antoine Lavoisier, was a wealthy Parisian lawyer, and his mother was from a well-to-do family. When he was five, his mother passed away and left him a huge inheritance. Yeah, and while his father had originally been from a town roughly 50 miles northeast of Paris, Antoine Laurent was really born a Parisian, uh, although he did often summer in his father's hometown, which was Villiers-Cotterêts. In the absence of his mother, Lavoisier's Aunt Constance became a significant caregiver and influence on his life. The two of them are said to have been extremely close. And he attended the uh, Collège de Quatre Nations. Uh, you'll sometimes see this referred to as the Collège Mazarin. And while there, he studied astronomy, mathematics, botany, geology, mineralogy, logic, chemistry, and other disciplines under some of the most respected thinkers of the day. He eventually focused his education on pursuing a law degree, primarily to please his family by following in his father's footsteps. He finished his law studies in 1763, and then he was licensed to practice a year later. But he never really had a passion for law, and he never practiced. Instead, he went right back to his love of science, primarily chemistry and geology. And he published a paper in 1765 addressing the problem of improving Parisian streetlights. Uh, some of his other earliest work, which he submitted to the Academy of Sciences, was an analysis of gypsum and plaster of Paris. And this early, early work that he was doing is still considered important work regarding the composition of cement. So already we've established that he he his impact is still felt very significantly today. Yeah. In 1768, while he was still only 25, Lavoisier was inducted into the elite Academy of Sciences. This was a big year for Lavoisier because he also bought an interest in La Ferme Générale. And La Ferme Générale was a private company that's 
the, the translates to farm general. Uh, and they actually collected taxes for the French sovereign. So they would go out and do the tax collecting and make a profit off of it as they handed off the taxes to the, the government. And so while his buy-in to this group solidified his fiscal standing and it was really helping him, you know, fund his life and his experimentation, it made him part of an organization that was not exactly popular with those not born into privilege, especially when you consider the political climate in France at the time. Yeah. As is often the case with uh, really predominant scientific thinkers, he had a personality that you might call distinctive. In Arthur Donovan's book, Antoine Lavoisier, Science, Administration, and Revolution, the legendary scientist is described as being something of an obsessive. Yeah, and to illustrate this, Donovan tells stories about things Lavoisier did when he was very young and sort of starting out in his uh, scientific um, experimentation. And he talks about him at 19 doing this experiment where he wanted to investigate the effects of diet on human health. And as part of this experiment, he adopted a plan of consuming nothing but milk. I like milk, but only milk is a little far. (laughs) In a similar episode to study illumination as part of work he was doing about street lamps, he proposed this plan to shut himself up in a dark room for six weeks straight so that he could make himself intensely sensitive to different levels of light. There's no evidence about whether he actually followed through on that one. So, yes, it's clear that like many groundbreakers throughout history, Lavoisier really did have this propensity for approaching problems and ideas with really extreme methodologies. On December 16th, 1771, a few years after his induction into the Academy of Sciences, Lavoisier married Marie-Anne Pierrette Pauls, who was only 13 at the time. While such a young bride is an unsettling concept, particularly to modern ears, Marie Anne was really a very, very smart woman, and she became an important collaborator to Lavoisier. By all accounts, it was quite a happy marriage and certainly, I think, more of an equal setup than many marriages at the time. Marie Anne actually learned English just so that she could translate scientific texts for her husband. And she also educated herself in art and engraving so she could illustrate his scientific papers. And she assisted him in his experiments throughout the year. And she often took notes while he was working. Um, and he really depended on those notes as like the basis for his writings. So she was really important. And they really did seem to have um, a, a really good um marriage where they were collaborating all the time. In 1775, he got an appointment to the Royal Gunpowder and Saltpeter Administration, often referred to as just the Gunpowder Administration. This branch of the government had been established by Louis XVI after he ascended the throne in 1774 and came to realize that France didn't really have in a, any kind of self-sufficient sourcing for gunpowder. And so Lavoisier had been appointed because he was a chemist and he moved into the Paris arsenal and he set up a lab that was so well appointed that throughout the years, I mean, he had this lab for a couple of decades, many of Europe's finest chemists and great thinkers were attracted to it. So it kind of became this interesting little enclave where people could go and experiment and think and trade ideas. Working in this then state-of-the-art lab, Lavoisier was able to uh, to advance the production of gunpowder to a point where he was making much better quality product at a very rapid pace. And he was able to refine the composition of gunpowder by analyzing and regulating the purity of its ingredients, those primary ingredients being sulfur, charcoal, 
and potassium nitrate, a.k.a. saltpeter, and he also refined the granulation process. But before we get into some other pretty big chemistry breakthroughs that happened in Lavoisier's lab, let's take a moment and uh, talk about our sponsor. So back to the world of Lavoisier. He spent several hours every day and one full day every week in the lab, and he's said to have treasured that one full day of research, which I can completely identify with. His wife is quoted as saying, It was for him a day of happiness. Some friends who shared his views and some young men proud to be admitted to the honor of collaborating in his experiments assembled in the morning in the laboratory. There they lunched. There they debated. It was there that you could have heard this man with his precise mind, his clear intelligence, his high genius, the loftiness of his philosophical principles illuminating his conversation. Yeah, so she, again, it's kind of a nice um, representation of their relationship that she really spoke very highly of him. Uh, and she clearly admired his his work and his mind and the way he worked. And it's just nice that he had this magical day every week that he felt like was his best day. And through his rigorous experimentation there, uh, one of the big things that happened is that Lavoisier became convinced that mass is neither created nor destroyed during ordinary chemical reactions. Uh, this is big stuff. The mass of substances produced by a chemical reaction is equal to the mass of the reactants involved. And uh, I will not pretend to have a particularly gifted chemistry mind, but most people will uh, recognize this as what was eventually put forth by Lavoisier as the law of conservation of mass. It's a hugely important basic chemistry concept. Yes. I Thank you, Lavoisier. Yeah. <laughs> this concept also led him to further examination of the work of English natural philosopher Joseph Priestley. Marianne had translated a whole lot of Priestley's work for Lavoisier. And Priestley had, in 1774, heated red mercury oxide to obtain a colorless gas, which would cause a candle that was lighted in it to burn with, quote, a remarkably vigorous flame, according to Priestley. And he referred to this colorless gas as deflogisticated air. Uh, at the time, the prevailing belief in chemistry was that a substance called phlogiston was a volatile part of all combustible substances and that it was released as flame during combustion. Uh, phlogiston gets its name from the Greek word for burn. Priestley thought that his pure air enhanced respiration and caused the more vigorous and longer lasting burn of candles because it was free of phlogiston. They traveled to Paris to meet with Lavoisier and discuss these findings. But Lavoisier felt that the phlogiston theory, which had been around for more than 100 years at this point, was fundamentally flawed. And this was a very significant shakeup in the scientific community at the time. This is on par with someone today claiming that potassium is an illusion. I mean, it's it was really like completely broke apart the fundamental base of how they approach chemistry. And when Lavoisier delved more deeply into analysis of combustion, he was able to identify the same gas that Priestley had, which Priestley was calling his deflogisticated air. Uh, Lavoisier eventually named it oxygen. And by weighing and analyzing the components of combustions, he came to the conclusion that phlogiston was, as he had suspected already, not a thing because it just, the math did not add up with his conservation of mass ideas. Right. He had come to the conclusion that air actually consisted of two components, one that combined with metal and supported respiration and one that did not support either of these things. 
1777, he officially put forth a new theory of combustion that left phlogiston completely off the table. And it's also during this time uh, in his famous lab that Lavoisier built on the work of other scientists to isolate and name hydrogen. And that's the thing that got him mentioned in our ballooning episode. In 1783, he was still embroiled in a constant, rigorous debate in the scientific community over this anti-phlogiston stance. He became really adamant that it was time to lead chemistry back to a stricter way of thinking. And he campaigned for a systematic analysis of chemistry and science that distinguished true fact from assumption. His goal was, quote, to rid chemistry of every kind of impediment that delays its advance. So scientific method being established. Extremely important, (laughs) as we've discussed in several episodes. In 1787, uh, in collaboration with Louis-Bernard Guiton de Morveau, Claude-Louis Bertrouet, Antoine-François Fourcroix, uh, he set forth this proposed method de nomenclature chimique. And this is basically the early periodic table. And at this point, it only consisted of 33 elements, which were grouped as gases, metals, nonmetals, and earths. And this was pretty groundbreaking. Like, basically, he was saying, if you can break a thing down to a point where you can't break it down any further, that's an element. And it's going on this list. That's a thing that we basically take for granted now in chemistry (laughs) class. Uh, And then in 1789, so two years later, still working with a lot of these same collaborators, Lavoisier published the Traité Elementaire de Chimie, which is basically the elementary treatise of chemistry. And it's basically the textbook that really set the stage and transitioned us to modern chemistry officially. Uh, it included the periodic table. It included the law of conservation of mass, as well as many other concepts. And Lavoisier anticipated that it was really going to take quite some time for these new ideas to be accepted. But interestingly enough, it was really just a couple of years before the ideas that he and his colleagues had worked on were just sort of an accepted part of common scientific practices. And I think it's probably because he was so strict in his scientific method that it was all really well laid out and there wasn't a lot of like, well, we think it's like we tested this and tested this and tested this. Right. Even though he was always really busy in his lab, Lavoisier also worked as a civil servant. In 1787, he was chosen as a member of the Assembly of Orleans. And in this position, he began to drop a plan for improving community socioeconomic issues. And this included the establishment of workhouses, canals, insurance societies, and savings banks. He was also asked to advise on issues such as sewers, the water supply, and developing a unified system of weights and measures, also known as the metric system. Yeah, he really, uh, again, the checklist of things he contributed to our modern lives starts to get a little um, mind-blowing because everything that he touched, we still are doing. Uh, But as the revolution stirred up around him, he really did seem to be genuinely interested in bettering the situation of the lower classes. And this is something that's been debated throughout the years as to whether or not he was kind of a foolish, well-off person, or if he really was in touch with these ideas and and really had a uh, a keen understanding of what was going on. He's said to have donated money of his own to the towns of Blois and Romontin for the purchase of grains during the famine. But unfortunately, he had already made a pretty significant enemy uh, in revolutionary Jean-Paul Marat when he had belittled Marat's work in the sciences. I think people don't always remember that Marat worked in science as well as his uh, sort of revolutionary 
status. Right. Marat, in reference to his interactions with the Academy of Science, referred at one point to, quote, the class of geometers and astronomers, which has formed a terrible cabal against me. Lavoisier was among those he felt had a bias against him. And yeah, he kind of did seem to think that Marat was a charlatan. Yeah, he didn't have high praise for him at all. So there, there is merit to that idea. Uh, in 1790, Lavoisier is quoted as saying, the state of public affairs in France has temporarily retarded the progress of science and distracted scientists from the work that is most precious to them. Like, he seemed to be kind of irritated by all of the things that were going on. Yeah. And wished they could just go back to their labs and work on improving the world and analyzing it. In January of 1791, Jean-Paul Marat began to loudly and publicly attack Lavoisier. In a pamphlet, he wrote... I denounce you to the Corypheus, the leader of the chorus, of the charlatans, Master Lavoisier, son of a land grabber, apprentice chemist, pupil of the Genevan stock jobber Necker, a farmer general, commissioner for gunpowder and saltpeter, director of the discount bank, secretary to the king, member of the Academy of Science, intimate of Volvier, unfaithful administrator of the Paris Food Commission, and the greatest schemer of our times. Would you believe that this little gentleman who enjoys an income of 40,000 livres and whose only claim to public recognition is that he imprisoned Paris by cutting off the fresh air with a wall that cost the poor people 33 million livres, is that he moved gunpowder from the arsenal into the Bastille on the night of July 12th and 13th, is engaged in a devilish intrigue to get himself elected as administrator of the Department of Paris. Yeah, so basically, Marat's saying, like, oh, you claim to be, you know, trying to do all of this civil work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, you just want more power and more money. Your hands are in everything. That's super suspicious. And during what what came to be known as the Reign of Terror, arrest warrants were issued for all the stakeholders in La Ferme Générale. Um, Lavoisier was, of course, among those sought for arrest. And allegations against this group of men included embezzlement of government funds and cutting the tobacco with other substances in order to increase toll duty profits. On May 8th, 1794, a revolutionary tribunal tried Lavoisier and found him guilty in the conspiracy against the people of France. The famed chemist was sent to the guillotine that very day, as was his father-in-law, Jacques Pauls, leaving Marianne without a father or a husband. Yeah, he had always had some business interests with her father. Uh, and some historians have pointed to the fact that Jean-Paul Marat had been assassinated 10 months prior to Lavoisier's beheading as evidence that Marat should really not be blamed for Lavoisier's death. But there are others that would counter that his anti-Lavoisier rhetoric really took a toll on the man's public image. And this was certainly a time when smear campaigns and bad press uh, particularly in France, were coloring the reputations of people for very long periods of time. For example, Let the Meat Cake came out of uh, a cartoon that was running at the time, and how long have people still believed that Marie Antoinette said that? Right. Eighteen months after his beheading, Lavoisier was exonerated. Yeah, once things had calmed down uh, a little bit and there was a, a more in-depth analysis of everything that had happened, it became clear that really he was not this evil weasel that they had made him out to be. Right. Unfortunately, if they had thought of that 18 months prior, think of all the other chemistry stuff we would have. Uh, However, on June 8th of 1999, the American Chemical Society and 
Uh, La Société Française de Chimie dedicated an international historical chemical landmark to Lavoisier in Paris. As an additional note, Lavoisier has also had a rather lasting impression on American science and industry via the DuPont family. Pierre Samuel DuPont was one of Lavoisier's close friends, and after the revolution, during which DuPont had been arrested and barely managed to escape the guillotine, Pierre Samuel decided to travel to the United States and start a new life. Using gunpowder manufacturing knowledge that he had learned from Lavoisier, DuPont and his son opened up a powder works in Delaware in 1802, and it eventually became the huge corporation we know it as today. Yeah, and his son actually wanted to name it after Lavoisier initially. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Uh, so, for better or for worse, uh, on all of these points, he's really in the thick of our modern chemistry knowledge and happenings, even now. So, th- yeah. thank him for having to learn the periodic table, except many people probably didn't enjoy learning that. I will just say thank for the awesomeness that is the periodic table. Yeah. You don't like memorizing things. We need it. Yeah. <laughs> It's important. (laughs) Do you have some listener mail for us? I do. uh, And I'm reading an excerpted version because it's a little bit long. So I apologize for not including everything. But this is from our listener, Kathleen. uh, And it is in relation to our uh, Bride of Frankenstein episodes. And she says, I wanted to share a little story I had concerning the history of the Frankenstein franchise. A few years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting and interviewing Sarah Karloff, the only child of Boris Karloff. She came to my university to give a speech about her father, and as I was the only one on the newspaper staff who knew who Boris Karloff was by name, I got the assignment, which I was super excited to do. I had a long interview with Miss Karloff, and she told me that although Frankenstein is always depicted as green, he was supposed to be gray. The makeup artist used green paint on Karloff, but they did this to get a better gray color since the film is in black and white. It also makes more sense that a body made out of dead corpses would be gray instead of green. She showed me the only known footage of Boris in the green makeup on color film that was filmed by her mother on set, which shows Boris out of character sticking his tongue out at the camera. It was incredibly charming to see Frankenstein do such a childish thing. Miss Karloff said that her father never minded being typecast as a horror actor or villain because he was so thankful to have a job. He was half Indian, so his skin tone enhanced by makeup and his dark voice were perfectly utilized in villain parts. Karloff was disappointed to not be able to be in the film Arsenic and Old Lace with Cary Grant, but as as he had a contract for the play on Broadway, he was unable to take part in the film, even though there is a joke written about him in the script. Karloff is also known uh, for the voice of the narrator of The Grinch, and Miss Karloff said that he took that role for his grandchildren. Uh, She also went into detail about how Boris Karloff was one of the founders of the Screen Actors Guild, and that his card number was something like six. Uh, she discussed how famous actors would come to her house or how her father would go to their houses and as they organized to unionize the film business. She said that they would have to park their cars a long way from the houses and then walk just in case they were being watched by studio bosses. I always love those wonderful little yeah. anecdotes. Uh, and then Kathleen mentioned that she would like us to do more topics on Sweden, which I would like to do as well. Uh, and talks about some other things she would love for us to cover, so... Hopefully we'll get to some of those. Um, I have seen this beautiful picture of Karloff in the full makeup drinking tea, and he's totally pinky out, like, fancy pants drinking it. It's the cutest thing I've ever seen. I love that. Uh, yeah, it's uh, and it is funny. I always kind of laugh when you see Frankenstein's monster painted green. Right. Because it is kind of weird. That's not what happens to corpses. They don't, um, unless they grow green. some kind of fungus. Yeah. 
Mossy. <laughs> so much. Uh, if you would like to write to us and share cool anecdotes, which I always love, uh, you may do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff, on Twitter at Mist in History, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and you can visit us on Pinterest, where you're often busy anyway. Uh, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about something we talked about today, I have two ideas. One is you can go to our website and do a search for oxygen, and one of the articles will be, what if I pumped pure oxygen into my car engine instead of using the air in the atmosphere? And the other is that if you type the word guillotine, you get the article, do you really stay conscious after being decapitated? Yikes. And there was at one point kind of an apocryphal rumor story about Lavoisier making a deal with somebody else that... uh, if he could still, if he was still conscious after decapitation for a moment, he would wink. Um, that's been largely discounted, but it's a fun story just yeah. the same. And if anybody would try something like that, it's the same man that wanted to drink nothing but milk as a 19-year-old. Definitely. <laughs> so if you would like to look up either of those things or almost anything else you can think of, you can do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 